This episode is a conversation with Professor Nick Dunn, Dr. Serena Palastri and Dr. Rupert Griffiths, where they discuss urban design and the future of places and how we might radically reimagine cities to be more accommodating of collective life. Welcome to Design Research with Imagination, a podcast from Imagination Lancaster, the design research lab at Lancaster University. Design research at Imagination takes an open-ended, anti-disciplinary approach that celebrates the multitude of ways people conduct design research and how this research will be seen, heard and acted upon. Our design research is based upon different ways of doing, thinking and interacting and is inclusive in scope. Listen and enjoy. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Nick Dunn uh, and we're here to talk about some of the work we're doing under the theme of City and Urban here at Imagination at Lancaster University. But before we begin, I'd like to introduce my two colleagues. So I'm sat here today with Dr. Serena Palastri and Dr. Rupert Griffiths. So if you'd each like to say a little bit about yourselves. Uh, well, I can start. Hi, I'm Serena Pollastri and I'm a lecturer in Urban Futures here at Lancaster University. And I guess the reason why I'm here today is that my research has to do with uh, developing methods and tools that help us explore more than human aspects of environmental issues in places. Hi, I'm Rupert Griffiths. I'm a research associate in Leica. Um, so my work is related to urban nature and um, particularly the sort of margins between, uh, between society and nature. So I'm interested in spatial margins like waste, waste and wastelands or temporal margins such as the night or the largest scale, time scale, the Anthropocene and sort of the transition from the Holocene to the Anthropocene. Um, so yeah, and I'm working in two ways. One, looking at artists and designers who consider those kind of um, margins and the other is developing methods uh, which make observa environmental observations related to those kind of margins, whether that's through photography or sound recording or um, unattended sensors. Brilliant, thanks both. Okay, so as Professor of Urban Design, I have the distinct pleasure of working with both Serena and Rupert on a regular basis. And one of the things we're really looking at when we think about um, the future of places is how we might radically reimagine cities to be more accommodating of collective life. For centuries and centuries, cities have been built really on principles of humans as the principal users. And really what we want to think about in a lot of the work we've been doing uh, more recently is how we might accommodate the more than human. Now, some of our listeners may have heard that term in other uh, sort of domains. So the more than human thinking may be about, say, artificial intelligence, for example. We do embrace that, but we're really also thinking about the more than human in terms of other species. So what you're gonna hear from uh, in this podcast now is how under the, the overall theme of design research, imagination and the future, we're taking the future of cities somewhere else. So both Rupert and Serena have been working on uh, projects that think about the multi-species, that think about biodiversity. So I wonder if perhaps each of you might like to say a little bit about what you've been doing. Yeah, well, I, I can start. Um, 
Yeah, so in the last few years I've been working with um, people in environmental science and geography, uh, as well as the general public, and I've worked a lot with um, school children and young people. And the premise is that often the way in which we explore the environment, whether it's in cities or outside cities, um, is through quantifiable, measurable things. So um, we might assess uh, stuff about the weather or um, we might uh, optimize the number of plants that are uh, planted in a certain area to improve biodiversity. But we don't really engage that much with the messy aspects of the environment. Um, so working with uh, people in other disciplines, we've been speculating on uh, what tools might we need to engage with these aspects of the environment. Um, so I've worked with a cartographer uh, who um, worked with me on developing a way of doing cartographies of places that keep changing, so places that are affected by tides. Uh, how do you do a cartography that it's always changing and shifting? Um, I worked with um, uh, colleagues in uh, computer science looking at how do we uh, capture data on biodiversity and we used um, analog techniques of uh, cyanotype making and doing that with children. Um, and then I worked with colleagues in the environment recently, in the environment center recently, um, who are interested in coastal change and sea level rising. Um, so how do you capture data about that, but also how do you engage people in understanding and creating futures that come from that, um, uh, that, that change? Um, and all of it is about creating approaches and tools that don't give you exact quantities or exact predictions about what might happen, but it lets you engage with the environment in a more relational way so that um, you um, kind of um, approach the more messy area of the environment and um, again, engage with place in a different ways rather than try and extract data and quantify information. And I think it's interesting to do that from a design perspective because uh, design and creative disciplines uh, allow you to move a little bit beyond the idea of like data extraction and speculate a little bit on what other ways of engaging with the environment you can create if only you change the approach. That sounds fascinating and I think it returns to a point that you'll hear I'm sure throughout this podcast. Uh, and also across work more broadly in imagination about the role of design research. Design research is really important in terms of being able to connect with the messiness and the complexity of the world around us. And I think when we think about cities, this is really, really important. Perhaps for too long, cities have become increasingly homogenous. They're all getting very, very similar. And many of our listeners might recognize that when they walk down a high street and see the same brands, the same shops, the same retail experience. And a lot of the ways in which our cities have evolved have been transferred around the world through you know, processes of globalization. And I think we're really recognizing now more than ever, you know, in an age of climate emergency, just how important it is for places to have their own specificity. If they're going to be resilient and sustainable, they're going to need to rely more on their local situations. So a lot of our work is, is looking at places as situated, as relational, uh, and of course, as plural, as diverse. So it's a not one size 
all uh, approach at all. And many of the, the methods we are employing are doing exactly as Serena has just been describing. So we're trying to shed new light, perhaps, on, on existing problems or, or build new knowledges that are not just about measuring things, but describing much more qualitative experiences. But I think with that in mind, and as someone that's been developing a lot of interesting new methods, perhaps Rupert, you'd like to talk a bit more about some of the yeah. work you've been doing? Yeah, so, so the stuff that I'm working on at the moment is concerned broadly with the question of how we can make urban um, environments legible as, as ecologies, like more than human ecologies. And when I'm, the way that I approach more than human is as biotic, abiotic and technological agents and actants that, through which the environment emerges through various processes. Um, so one of the sort of um, approaches that, that I've been taking is by using um, sensors that make kind of close observations of the environment um, and so it kind of produces a, a, a data set but I'm, I'm kind of interested in how in the relationship between observation and poetry so I'm kind of taking um, a geopoetic approach I call it uh, which is essentially treating the senses as observers, like much like um, in sort of nature poetry, it's very much about very close observation of the environment and a sort of imaginative inhabitation of that, of those observations and the way those are expressed. Um, so this is a kind of, I'm trying to take a similar approach where it's recording quantitative data in many ways, but, um, but then treating it as um, kind of poetic material through which to um, kind of express that. But, it, but generally, I'm not using texts, but rather visual material. So it's kind of finding um, kind of visual, generally visual ways of, of representing or of communicating that those observations. So there's two there's two sort of aspects to the work really. There's the there's the actual observation aspect, and then there's the communication aspect. In terms of the the kind of observations that, that I'm working with, they tend to be kind of quite very simple observations like light levels, uh, looks, hue, um, and uh, but over but over very long periods of time. So the, the sort of idea is to bring out the sort of rhythms and the cycles of that are, that are, are, are visible within the environment. Um, some of that might also be related to sound. So kind of the light, light recordings, which I'm treating as drivers of, of uh, behavior within the environment and sound recordings as sort of proxies for behavior, which kind of uh, make visible, you know, kind of the bird song, particular kinds of birds at particular times of the day and night, that sort of thing. Um, but also over various timescales from the day to day to the sort of infrared lunar, which is kind of 28 day period through to the seasonal annual and infrared annual. Um, and what one of the one sort of aspect of that is um, a, a thing that a, essentially a phonology camera, which is um, a, a one pixel camera, essentially, which is recording 10 channels of light, different sort of specific wavelengths or kind of overlapping wavelengths. And through that, you can 
monitoring environment um, or, a, or a single tree, for example, and show how that, how that changes, like the sort of life cycle events of that tree or that, or that landscape throughout the year. Um, so that's another sort of element of this stuff. So one of the one example is working with Silverdale and Arnside area of outstanding natural beauty, and um, so they were they wanted to do some dark sky readings because they've got quite dark, dark skies and they want to maintain that and have some sort of material through which to you know um, communicate the dark how dark the skies are and influence kind of um, local lighting policy perhaps and that sort of thing um, but it's kind of quite difficult well it's quite expensive uh, time consuming activity you know you've got to go into the landscape at night take readings throughout the night in different locations um, so I kind of proposed putting some unattended look sensors throughout the landscape and um, and that's basically what I'm working on right now is, is sort of building those sensors and then they're going to be installed in the landscape uh, sort of in the next few weeks, hopefully. And they will measure looks levels at a very fine level, so it'll pick up sort of variations in moonlight, that sort of stuff. Um, and also a whole range of other sort of light parameters. Um, but also, I'm also building in stuff like the phenology camera that I mentioned before and various other things. So it'll, so it'll pick up uh, not only variations in light, which might be related to local light pollution, um, but also kind of put that in a context of the daily changes in light and dark, uh, and also daily temperature changes and um, but, you know, similar, similar sort of things to that. Um, yeah, and then, and then that will basically find a way to present that data. Um, that, that'll be the next sort of phase after the, after the, after the um, sensors have gone in. Really interesting, thank you. Sorry, were you going to say something? Uh, yeah, no, I was going to like pick up on the way in which the three of us, and in general our group, is um, interested in processes rather than artefacts. Because it does seem that, so I'm interested in processes that um, help you pick up on and, and engage with the messiness of place. And you talked beautifully about the using data and like capturing data in a poetic way, and your work with night walks. Um, it's all sort of like questioning the way in which urban research is done. And so instead of doing it, you know, in academia from the office, from our desk, engaging um, every once in a while with some field work, we kind of, it seems that all of us are interested in going outside and being out and doing research with place rather than about place. So that's quite interesting. I think that's a really useful observation. And I think one of the things that does connect is it's very much that embodied sense of place uh, rather than trying to understand it sort of somewhat removed. I mean, you, you mentioned it then, but a lot of the work that I've been doing is about night and about cities at night. And Well, cities at night, surely there's loads of research about that. Well, yes, there is, but not in the way that we're doing it here at Imagination because much of the research on cities at night is about nighttime economy. So it's about important issues of safety, uh, of alcohol consumption, of you know licensing laws and all these things. And they are important things, but they're predominantly coming from the social sciences. Where there's a real opportunity for design to make a difference is to think about how we might design 
uh, a multi-species urbanism, so how do you promote biodiversity, sort of life after dark, because we think a lot about nature and urban nature in cities, but it's always during the day. There's very little consideration of designers, um, and when designers are brought into it, they're always brought into it under the umbrella of lighting design. So it's like, you know, light is good, darkness is bad, it's quite problematic. And a lot of the work we've been doing um, collectively and some of the work I've been doing sort of individually is really trying to challenge some of those design values and think about what might a nocturnal city be. Um, e even the work I was doing during the pandemic, there was certainly a lot less people out and about at night. So I'm fascinated in what are these people doing? Where do they find relaxation and respite? Can you still enjoy? green spaces and blue spaces at, at night and what, what might that do because biodiversity is going to be really critical and I think going forward you know a lot of urban futures are portrayed in the way that they're shown in science fiction so they're almost completely closed sealed entities a bit like a fortress world that kind of classic thing a bit like a medieval city in a way so you're either in there and you're safe and you have access to all the city's resources or you're outside of it and I rather suspect that while some cities may end up like that, um, perhaps because of extreme weather events and climate change, I would hope that we have much more porous cities that connect to the lands outside, which is, of course, where our food's coming from, where our energy's coming from, and all these other things. So that, that openness, that generosity of what a city can be, it's not just about the human beings in that city, but it's also about all the other all the other species that we share this planet with. So for my part, I've been spending a lot of time with rats, bats, and wayward cats. Um, that's not because I'm trying to get into the mindset of a fox. I'll never be able to design a city as a fox. But by, as you've heard already from, you know, Rupert and Serena, by increasing our knowledges, by developing new kind of, how might you put it, um, sensitivities, I suppose, to the, to the ways in which other beings use, use urban space, you can start to understand how it's co-produced. It's not just us as a species that, that use things, but I don't know whether that inspires either of you to, to come in here and say anything about that. Yeah, I think the thing about the fortress world you were talking about in urban visions, like often na like urban nature in future visions is presented as either something that is planned and controlled or something that is outside the city or something that we bring in the city with a functional view to it. So we produce food in these uh, bubbles where you can grow vegetables through aquaponic or uh, cricket farms in movable shelters and so on. But um, what we tend to forget when we make these urban visions is that nature doesn't quite work that way. It doesn't, you know, the boundaries that we put are political and we put them and we decide where they are. But in fact, nature doesn't care about it. Um, and um, yeah, so it's it's important to kind of question who puts the boundary, where the boundaries are, and stop and observe what what happens in place otherwise. I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, particularly when you think about the depiction of um, nature in future cities, it's always green. It always looks great. The skies are always blue. The leaves don't fall off. Um, and of course, that, that, that's not quite true, certainly as people that live in northwestern Europe, you know, that's definitely not the case. Um, so I think trying to have a more expansive view on what an urban future might be, and I think particularly who it's for. And I think, you know, that, that idea of 
who gets to speak about that future, which is one of the things that um, Rupert with the work he's doing in, in, with the environmental data and the new things he's capturing, the work that Serena's been doing with young people and biodiversity logbooks, and the work I've been doing with night workers um, and other people that are out about night, is trying to bring perhaps some marginalised or previously underrepresented or possibly some entirely novel new voices to that kind of discourse to get them to think about the future of place. But I wonder if that's a point you might like to pick up on, Rupert. Yeah, I mean, other things that I, I think um, in this is that the imaginaries of a city, of urban, of urban nature, perhaps of the urban in general, are kind of perhaps don't necessarily match the realities of, of that because I mean cities are essentially you know they 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 they've got a very strong relationship with the geology upon which they've emerged um, the water uh, table the water courses that run through them all these kind of things um, essentially create the the, the city I'm interested in how how you kind of make those things legible and bring them into the imaginaries of the city um, where because they often can be sort of made absent or you know they're not they're not kind of really loud and visible voices so how do you sort of um, make those things more present because um, I because I do think that the, you know cities are fundamentally not um, human you know entities they're 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 an, um, you know they're really a, a hybrid or um, they're, they're a kind of natural, you know, artifact in many ways. You know, I don't think humans are in any way separate from nature in in the city. Um, so yeah, I mean that, but it, but I think the imaginaries of what the city are can can tend to em emphasise the human perhaps more than um, than is appropriate, you know, or that, we, that that doesn't really match the reality of what the city is. Um, and, that, and that's, I mean, when I think of urban nature, I often think about the, the sort of places where, um, like the sort of gaps in the city, or um, even like gaps in the pavement or whatever. You know, you've got, you've always got um, lots of very natural processes. Well, that's to say natural, you know, um, with inverted commas, but I think all of it's natural. But um, you know, it's it's kind of there everywhere. Um, but, they, but I think I find the sort of like wastelands, for example, or you know, abandoned areas and, uh, quite interesting in that respect because because they they are places where you get where the imaginaries of like for example the artists that I look at emerge as very clearly kind of as a hybrid you know between human kind of activity and uh, sort of non-human activity and and the author, the sort of authors of those works tend to kind of dissolve their identity as well, so they become they kind of um, sit somewhere, you know, they kind of dissolve their authorship and tend to kind of think of collaborating with the landscape or giving the landscape a voice in some way. So I'm very interested in that that sort of, I guess that really, maybe giving the landscape a voice and sort of maybe toning the human voice down a bit and letting the landscape speak more loudly. When when um, when we went out with uh, 
primary school children and give them the logbook, so a set of tools to capture um, information about plants in the environment and try and get them to notice plants that would otherwise go unnoticed and, um, and learn how to notice plants in the environment. We took them to do different places. One is a park where they go to, to play um, every day. And the other one was a pocket of land just on the side of the street where they pass by to go to school, but you wouldn't go there because it's full of brambles, it's messy, you know, it's the kind of place where like your parents say like, just don't go in there. And so we took them to do different places and, um, and by getting them to notice what plants would grow there, they noticed that actually the site on the edge of the street had way more diversity in terms of plants than the park had, because the park actually was quite a boring place to do field work, because you could only find grass and the odd clover. Um, and so just by giving them the tools and sending them out on field work, they started to question Right, why is that the case? So parks are designed for leisure activities, but not really great for plants. And this place where we don't really go to has conditions that are more suitable for uh, plant biodiversity. So um, yeah, so like kind of like engaging with place and learning to notice and learning to record uh, what is there might give you some insights on um, how you know, um, places that we design for humans might not be the best where nature can thrive, quote-unquote nature, because that's a clear term to use. Thanks both. I think they're really interesting observations. I mean, I think this idea of unfinishedness is quite interesting, um, and the fact that we're all um, here working with sites that have potential, it's because they've not been completely um, programmed or regenerated or finished. And I think that's one of the ways in which we've been doing quite a lot of work here in Imagination, critiquing the idea of the smart city, because the smart city always shows something as finished. It's highly technological. It's really smooth. It's what we've termed a frictionless future. You know, everything just works beautifully. And of course, we kind of know that the future is not going to be like that. You know, it will be a sort of, you know, it's, it's, it'll have things that don't work. It'll still have dust around. Things will break down. So that's what actually makes cities interesting not not that they're dysfunctional but actually we slow down for a bit we can move through them at different speeds we can have serendipity and encounters and if you start taking all that out because of efficiency you actually lose what city is so i think these sites that haven't been fully developed or maybe maybe what we're arguing for not not in terms of a building site that would be hazardous but is an unfinished city something that always because a city is always a process it's not a product and I think one of the things you see over the last 150 years of planning generally uh, and urban design is the idea of a city as a visionary master plan, you know, that this is how it should be, this is the model, This we, we will build it and they will come. And actually, we all know that urban, urban living is a process, it's an ongoing process uh, for us and the, and, the, and the generations that will follow. So I think there's something really interesting there about setting out maybe the, the scaffolding or some principles and practices for how we might collaborate, uh, whether it's amongst ourselves, whether it's through other beings, um, and, and, and give, but also enabling some flexibility, those margins for things to change, you know, because accepting change in a city is a really important part of a city flourishing. 
Yes, um, I was talking last week with, um, as part of an event, I was talking with um, this person from the city council who is in charge of uh, working on the climate emergency agenda. And she was pointing out how tricky it is actually to uh, design um, interventions that prepare you for climate change because of the way in which policies are written. And one that she was particularly pointing out was one on um, the, the fact that in the UK, houses have to have a front door that's at the ground level, unless, and she quoted, geography doesn't allow you to do so. But the problem is that by geography, it's meant the conditions of terrain in that particular moment in time. And the risk of flooding is not, is not intended as part of the geography. And so she was saying how, how odd it is that we actually think about um, you know, places as stuck in a certain moment in time and we design for that, but often we, we are not allowed to uh, design for future conditions that we know about or the flexibility that we need to address that. That's a really interesting point. I mean, Rupert, you've been doing a lot of work in relation to time. Is there something you'd like to say about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think in cities more in, in terms of um, like networks rather than the actual material structure. I always think of the material structure as being a kind of accretion of the of, of the networks, the processes that are running, like social networks and movements of you know of of resources of information. Um, but I think the you know it's often you know, the, the, the rural dimension is often thought of as being, you know, in some way more natural than the city or whatever. But, but, but I always think of the of rural landscapes as being, I mean, they're essentially industrial landscapes most of the time. Um, so there's a kind of interesting um, relationship, I think, between how we think about the city, the imaginaries of the city and the imaginary of the rural. Um, that's just really answer your question about time. Absolutely, right. you, um, you, you, don't have, you don't have to. I mean, no, but I think it's an interesting point about um, about landscape formation and about how places form. Because you know, obviously, what Serena's talking about is the idea that you, you we design very much for the moment, and it's quite short termism in the way that we think. Although, ironically, policy can take quite a long time to develop, and yet, surely, as designers. Uh, and communities, we can be thinking about something that's much more responsive uh, because we are living in a fairly short moment when we think about geological time. You know, um, I mean, what, what we've managed to do through uh, the activity of humans uh, in a fairly short time frame is, is hugely consequential uh, for the planet and all its cascading effects. So I think cities and places more generally can be can be sites where you can start to remediate some of that action and do something more positive perhaps but i wonder if either of you have any thoughts on that yeah i mean one of the things that i'm trying to do with, with the work i'm doing at the moment is to is to make legible those uh, sort of temp different different temporalities going different times you know temp temporal scales uh, like from sort of day-to-day -day lived experience and or even the moment-to-moment experience and then the sort of day-to-day -day life uh, and then through all these other time scales that exist you know like there's, there's, there's time scales that are particular to humans but then there's a whole load of time scales which which you might you know perceive more readily in a rural 
environment, for example, um, like the phases of the moon, for example, which which kind of get obscured in the in the city to an extent because of the amount of uh, sort of anthropogenic light there is there. Uh, so it's kind of trying to make legible those those multiple timescales and ones that are not specific to humans. Um, so like the kind of even things like the seasonal, you know, like blossoming of trees, for example, which you do notice in the city. Um, but there's plenty of other things that you probably that you won't notice, you know. Um, and and then sort of beyond that, trying to make that legible in the context of scales of ten of decades to hundreds of years and then potentially to thousands of years, you know, kind of and putting it into a planetary context and into the way that the, the planet moves around the sun and through space over time. Um, so that, yeah, yeah. And, and also kind of picking up on um, sedimentary sort of ways of thinking about time. So again, sort of like linking it to geological uh, processes and you know, the kind of um, very long-term stuff that the, the, the Anthropocene kind of uh, brings into, into play. Great. Anything, anything to add? Okay. Well, thank you both. That's been really, really interesting. I mean, I, I hope our listeners have enjoyed that. I think what you hopefully are taking from this is that the work we've been doing here, uh, where we're thinking about the future of places, is really trying to design with people and other beings, um, with the planet in mind, but through and with place. It's very, very situated. Um, and so... You know, although we haven't got all the answers quite yet, um, we, you know, we're developing new tools, new methods and new knowledges for the ways in which people can engage with, with place. And we're recognising it's a much more complex subject than perhaps the last couple of hundred years of, of research are suggesting. So that's where we're really throwing ourselves into the deep end. But um, it's been a pleasure being able to talk to you. So thank you, Serena. Thank you, Rupert. And that's all from me. So I think it's about time we wrapped it up. Goodbye, everyone, and take care. Thank you for listening. Further details and links about what has been discussed in the show, plus a transcript and information about how you can get in touch with us, are in the show notes. Check out our website where you can discover other episodes and more about imagination and the work we do. Please do get in touch. <laughs>